Today we'll be looking at Genesis 2 from verse 4 to 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gishon, Kihon. It runs through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Can you believe it that uh, this week, or sorry, this coming week, another Thor movie is going to get released? I bet you're all excited, aren't you? I mean, how many, how many Thor movies can we have? It seems like the superhero genre has become so popular that even though you think 
They could not have done anything more with Thor. They get another movie out of Thor. And it seems like the storyline is so predictable. Somebody who, in a superhero film, either they have an inherent power or they're an ordinary person who receives a, a, a superpower and then the world seems to be heading towards chaos. Or it seems as though evil or the, the, the evil villain is about to bring chaos into the world. And it's the role of the superhero to hold the chaos and the evil at bay. And it seems in the, uh, particularly in the Marvel stories and some of the other superhero stories, the innocent bystanders seem to be humanity. Well, it might seem like these uh, modern day superhero stories are harmless fun, but actually the undertone of many of these superhero stories are actually ancient mythological stories about spirits and gods, particularly the Thor movies. These superhero stories have people with extreme superpowers, almost, they, we don't call them gods in the superhero stories, but they really are in the ancient stories, they would be the gods, and the gods with the superpowers battle it out, and the humanity seems to be the the innocent bystanders. And so in the ancient Middle Eastern culture and Mesopotamia and Babylonia, Assyria, all of these, uh, Egypt, they all had these origin stories about the origin of the world where the gods were battling it out and they were holding it by chaos. But universally, amongst all of these ancient cultures, everybody knew that the world was on a tension between chaos and order. And the question really was, who brought the order because the world needed to be in order? Chaos wasn't good, everybody knew chaos wasn't good, and order was what was meant to be achieved. And almost universally in these ancient cultures, there was this idea that order was a balance that needed to be held carefully and humanity had a role in creating that order. So if we want to understand the second chapter of Genesis, we don't look to contemporary science, we don't look to uh, modern day understandings of how we write history, what we do is we understand the culture in which this story was written into, understand that culture, and then we might be able to understand its meaning a lot more. So in the ancient cultures, there's these myths and legends about either spirits that inhabit particular lands, or there were gods who existed either in the lands or in the heavens or in the underworld. There was all these different myths and so, into that culture, the ancient Israelites had a story about how they believed their God 
And what it says here in the original language is God Elohim. Their God brought order to this chaos. At the start of Genesis 2, there's no vegetation because God has not brought rain to the land. There's water, but but God hasn't brought rain and so there's nothing for the vegetation to grow. But also, there's no one to work the land, so there's no crops that are edible, there's no vegetation that's edible, there's no what we would now call agriculture. And so in verse 5, we hear that there are no crops and there are no vegetation because God hasn't brought the rains yet. And so, God bends down into the earth, scoops up the earth, and from the earth creates the first prototype of humanity. A a prototype that we call Adam. And in the original language, Adam kind of means to be red, to be formed from the red dust. And God takes this prototype of humanity that we call Adam, and notice, it's, it's really important to notice that God breathes life into this Adam, this prototype human. The breath of God is critical to understand throughout the, the whole of the Bible. This theme of the breath of God coming in to give life is, a, is an image that's portrayed multiple times throughout the Scriptures. Now, in, in some ways, if we just understand it in its original context, the original authors didn't understand the Trinitarian theology as we might know it, and so this breath is, is, is a sign and symbol of God giving life to humanity. We might jump to the day of Pentecost and see the breath of God coming and say, well, that's the Holy Spirit, but maybe the original authors and the original audience didn't understand it like that. But the critical theological point is that it's God that breathes life into humanity. So, we have this image of a prototype of human, this Adam, and he represents mankind. Now, in our contemporary world where we we don't use mankind to describe all of humanity, we'd we'd probably say that, that Adam represents humanity or represents all of us. But God takes Adam and then places Adam into a sacred garden, a special garden, And God creates vegetation for Adam. The the vegetation in this particular garden is edible for people to eat. And then into the middle of this garden is the tree of life. Now, this tree of life is not a tree of eternal life. The the scholars and, and there's so much of this, I mean, John Walton, one of the, the commentators and scholars on this, he's got several volumes just on Genesis 1 and 2. So, if you really want to geek out on all of the, the background to all of this, just look up John Walton and, and I can le- lead you to some uh, YouTube clips where he unpacks this more. For example, just in Genesis 2, he does an hour and 18 minutes on just this and I'm only going to give you 20 minutes. 
But God takes Adam, puts him into this garden, in the centre of the garden is the tree of life. And, and scholars are saying that it's almost like the fruit of the tree of life is something where you eat it and it extends your life, but it doesn't grant you eternal life. So they didn't eat from it once and then have life forever. Now this is, I'm not really getting into the fall, which is in Genesis chapter 3, but it's almost like they eat it and their, their life is extended, but when they don't get to eat it, that's when the decay starts to happen that we hear in Genesis 2, where they're banned from eating from the tree of life and, and the, the, the cycle of death and decay for humanity. But that's Genesis 3 and I, and I, I won't get to that today or in this series. But God has this purpose for Adam and God gives this garden to Adam to care for creation and so what God does is God has gone down into the earth, creates Adam, breathes life into Adam but then goes back to the earth and picks up the earth and shapes all of the animals. But notice God doesn't breathe life into the animals. It's, 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 a, it's a theological image that's portrayed there that there's a special role for humanity, there's a special relationship between humanity and God. And I think whilst some people have criticised Genesis for, for, for not understanding science, I think in the very primitive ancient culture, this is a scientific understanding that the, 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 the dust that makes us, when we die and decay, makes the same dust that animals, when they die and decay, creates. We come from the same sort of matter, but God has breathed life into humanity, giving it a special purpose that animals don't have. And so, God then gives humanity this amazing privilege and role. God gives humanity this privilege of caring for creation. And so, notice in Genesis 1, we have this origin story that God is above creation. He's not creation itself, but sits above. And in Genesis 2, we get the same image. In both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we have these living creatures coming from the same material, but humanity has a role above other created orders. And remember in Genesis 1, and we've heard in Genesis 2, that God gives them a role to look after creation, rather than to use it and abuse it. And so God continues giving humanity this special role by giving humanity the role to name the animals. In this more personal story in Genesis chapter 2, because Genesis 1, it's really about what God does and we have a, almost like a zoom in to humanity here in Genesis chapter 2. And God gives Adam, this prototype human, the naming rights over all of the animals. Now, we can see that in ancient cultures, can't we? That somebody who creates something and gets to name it, has a great power and honour. A king or a queen has great power and honour because they can build things and then name it after them. And ancient cultures, cities all around 
the, the Middle Eastern area, there, there's things that are named after the, the founding king of it. But I think we can also see that that's a, a prestigious thing in our culture today. A great wealthy uh, business couple in Melbourne recently gave $10 million uh, to a, a particular hospital and the building that will be built to that hospital will be named after them. Naming rights become a thing that we understand. So if we want to understand the theological image of how special humanity is, we can see that God grants humanity naming rights over all the animals and shows that, that we theologically have a role distinct and above over the animals of this world. God grants this role and sets it apart. But unfortunately, there are Christians who've taken this special role, this sacred role, this understanding of a care of creation in Genesis 2 and misappropriated it and, and misunderstood it and abused it to see that they are given all of the animals and all of the resources by God to do whatever they want with. And so, we'd be fair to say that Christians throughout the centuries have abused and used for personal greed the resources of this earth. And rather than steward and care for it like a person would care for a sacred garden or a sacred temple, humanity has ripped the guts out of this earth and used it for personal greed. So, God didn't give humanity a special role to do whatever they liked, God invites humanity into the care of creation to keep this balance. It's almost like universally through the ancient cultures, humanity had a role at keeping chaos at bay and that's the role that they're given but it seems the way that humanity has used and abused the environment over the centuries, we've actually contributed to chaos coming into the world rather than keeping chaos at bay. So, rather than this task being an agricultural image that sometimes has been portrayed, it's actually a role in keeping a sacred garden. And so, we need to return to our understanding of the role that God has given us in creation. So, climate change is a real thing and as I've said over the last few weeks, the, the science is very clear on the, the climate is changing. It's very clear on that. But we're arguing and debating in our society the role of human activity in that and the response of human activity going forward. And there are some people, not just... Uh, people of all different faith backgrounds, there are some people in our society that take the extreme view that we've gone too far and we cannot restore uh, order again because we've gone too far. But I think actually this account in Genesis 2 gives us hope because God gave humanity this role, but also God equipped humanity with ingenuity and creativity and gave us the tools to be able to restore order in creation. 
And therefore, I take it that we haven't gone too far, but that perhaps actually human ingenuity and creativity will be part of the role that we need to do to help retain and restore the environment. But I also think we need to address human greed and a very short-term thinking and create a more sustainable and environmentally way of living. But Genesis 2 also brings us another theological idea, which is that male and female were created. This, again, has been a very challenging passage for Christians over the centuries. People have interpreted Genesis 2 in multiple different ways, and whilst I'm giving you what I think is some very good uh, scholarly uh, evangelical background, there are some fundamentalists who read Genesis 1 and 2 in very different ways, and I understand that, but I don't think they're backed by good scholarly understanding. And so, Genesis 2 gives us two ideas in terms of male and female. And these two ideas are written to the original audience, not to us. And the first one, the first theological point that we get, is that Adam did not find companionship amongst the animals. This prototype human, the first human, did not find companionship amongst the animals. And you might think, what's the point of that? Well, in the ancient Mesopotamian origin story, the first living creature was a half-beast, half-human. And this half-beast, half-human then created all the other animals. And this half-beast, half-human found companionship amongst the animals. And the ancient Israelites come along and say, no, our origin story is not that humanity found companionship amongst the animals, but humanity found companionship within itself. And so, this story of Adam and Eve is important because unlike the other ancient cultures, Adam had no companionship amongst the animals. Now, you might be saying to me, but geez, my dog really loves me and I, and I, I sometimes get on better with my dog or my cat. It's a different concept of companionship. And so, the second theological principle that's important here, so Adam finds no companionship amongst the animals. The second theological principle here is that God takes flesh from Adam to make the woman. Notice, God bends down into the earth and creates Adam. God bends down into the earth and makes animals, but where does God take the material to make woman? Takes it from Adam. Now, there are some people who've, who've tried to prove scientifically that men have one less rib and that's a sign that scientifically that this story is, is, is true and accurate, but the original language actually doesn't even really indicate a, a, a physical rib as such. It's almost kind of saying, a side of Adam was taken and God restored that side, but it's a theological point that woman is made from the same material, the same uh, very essence of humanity. 
that God, as we read in Genesis 1, created humanity, male and female, in God's image. And so, there's no theological point here in Genesis 2 of a woman being subordinated to men. That's totally a misreading of the Scriptures there. Now, I'm not an original language expert, and if you want to know more about this, I can point you to some stuff to do it. But in the original language, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the word for man that we have is, is translated as Adam. And Adam was created from the earth, and there's that word there for the earth. Notice how the, the word for man that we give, we think of, of, a, of a common name called Adam, but it's actually a word, it's not a, a pronoun, but this word is connected with the, the element from which it's created. And so we go to Genesis 2.21, and this woman, and that word is there, I can't pronounce it in the ancient Hebrew, was created from man, and there's that similar word. It's saying theologically, the whole point of this is that male and female are created from the same substance. Man and woman have this blessing from God, this breath of life in them, and are given a special role together. It's not like men have this special role over creation and women have this other role. If you want to get really technical about it, in the original language, this word that it says, uh, we translate it as suitable helper. Adam wanted a suitable helper. Actually, in the original language, the, the word suitable is not translated or used anywhere else in scriptures. But because of this idea that Adam gives half of himself to create woman, this word suitable is kind of like two halves to make a whole. This suitable helper is the thing that completes the other. If we want to get technical about it, the word helper almost implies the person of strength that helps out somebody in weakness. So, if we want to get technical about it, we could almost imply that it's the men that are the weaker ones and this stronger helper comes along to help. So, in the original language, they're not trying to make gender roles. What they're trying to do is say that men and women are of the same essence, are brought together by God to help one another and together they have a special role given to them by God over creation to steward it. So, we can see in 2022 that this has been used by some to create a special role for men that never existed in the original. The Bible is not aiming to make one inferior over the other. And so, this is a really important thing for us because we're going to, no doubt, if we engage in conversations about uh, creation, if we engage in conversations about the climate and we start to quote biblical ideas, no doubt people are going to throw back to us some of the ways that the Bible has been used inappropriately and out of context and really for more uh, human greed than for accurate biblical theology. So, they might throw back to you, well, actually, your Bible says that 
women are subordinated to men. Well, that's not what the original language says. In many ways, if you've listened to these three sermons, I haven't probably given you anything that's actually going to help you to actually deal with climate change in your life. I know we've got this climate change debate happening at the moment, but the reason I've done this series on God the Creator is because I think actually our world is crying out for an origin story that might help give the science meaning in our world. We're not debating the science. We are debating the ideologies and some of the mythological understandings that influence and uh, infiltrate to some of these climate change debates. The Gospel of John reminded us that God was Trinity from the very beginning. And so as we engage in environmental conversations and climate conversations, we begin from an understanding that before all things, God was there. And even science can't understand the very origins of our world. We need origin stories to tell us about what happened before what we know as the Big Bang. John's Gospel also reminds us that God sent Jesus into the world and Jesus comes into the world to bring light into the darkness, what we know as order into the chaos But also, Jesus coming into the world gives us hope because Jesus promised that through him, all things would be restored and renewed. And so, we as Christians need to have hope for the future, particularly around climate change. We shouldn't be joining the doomsdayers because Jesus promised that he would renew all things. That doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want to the environment and God will sort it out. We need to have a lesson on grace to understand that. But we're given a special role to care for creation, but also we have a hopeful message of the renewal of all things to offer our world. And in Genesis 1, we we, we read that uh, God brought order to the chaos. Genesis 1 also reminded us that God created humanity in God's image equally as male and female. And so this reminds us that when we tackle climate change, when we engage in environmental discussions, we see, Christians see humanity as distinct and separate from all other living creatures. We might like dolphins, we might like our dog, but they're not on the same level of the created order as us. But again, we're not debating the science that we're all made from the same material We just believe that God has given human life more value and dignity in our world. And Genesis 2 reminds us again that God brought order out of chaos. And Genesis 2 shows us an image of a garden, not for us to scientifically work out where that garden might have existed, but it's a theological image that we are given a sacred role of caring for creation like it's a sacred garden given to us not to shape as we want it or abuse it and use it as we want but we are given this care role and stewardship role and then Genesis 2 gives us this wonderful theological image that all humanity is created from the same flesh but created 
to be suitable helpers for one another, to be in relationship for one another. And rather than one person or one species or one gender having a, a special role to care for creation, it's this relationship that enables all of us to care for creation. So my hope for these three weeks has been that the next time that you engage in discussion with non-Christians about creation, about climate change, that you wouldn't duck for cover, but that you'd see that we have these valuable origin stories that actually can bring meaning and hope to the debates that we're having in society.